0: section 4 of the confidence man this librevox recording is in the public domain recording by mb the confidence man his masquerade by herman melville chapter 7 a gentleman with gold sleeve buttons at an interesting point of the narration and at the moment when with much curiosity indeed urgency the narrator was being particularly questioned upon that point, he was, as it happened, altogether diverted both from it and his story, by just then catching sight of a gentleman who had been standing in sight from the beginning, but, until now, as it seemed, without being observed by him. "'Pardon me,' said he, rising, "'but yonder is one who I know will contribute, and largely. Don't take it amiss if I quit you.' "'Go!' duty before all things was the conscientious reply the stranger was a man of more than winsome aspect there he stood apart and in repose and yet by his mere look lured the man in grey from his story much as by its graciousness of bearing some full-leaved elm alone in a meadow lures the noon sickleman to throw down his sheaves and come and apply for the alms of its shade but considering that goodness is no such rare thing among men the world familiarly know the noun a common one in every language it was curious that what so signalized the stranger and made him look like a kind of foreigner among the crowd as to some it make him appear more or less unreal in this portraiture was but the expression of so prevalent a quality such goodness seemed his allied with such fortune that as far as his own personal experience could have gone, scarcely could he have known ill, physical or moral, and as for knowing or suspecting the latter in any serious degree, supposing such degree of it to be, by observation or philosophy. For that, probably, his nature, by its opposition, imperfectly qualified, or from it wholly exempted, For the rest he might have been five and fifty, perhaps sixty, but tall, rosy, between plump and portly, with a prim, palmy air, and for the time and place, not to hint of his years, dressed with a strangely festive finish and elegance. The inner side of his coat-skirts was of white satin which might have looked especially inappropriate, had it not seemed less a bit of mere tailoring than something of an emblem, as it were, an involuntary emblem, let us say, that what seemed so good about him was not all outside. No, the fine covering had a still finer lining. Upon one hand he wore a white kid glove, but the other hand, which was ungloved, looked hardly less white. Now, as the Fidel, like most steamboats, was upon deck a little soot-streaked here and there, especially about the railings, it was a marvel how, under such circumstances, these hands retained their spotlessness. But, if you watched them a while, you noticed that they avoided touching anything. You noticed, in short, that a certain negro body-servant, whose hands nature had dyed black, perhaps with the same purpose that millers wear white, this negro servant's hands did most of his master's handling for him, having to do with dirt on his account, but not to his prejudices. But if, with the same undefiledness of consequences to himself, a gentleman could also sin by deputy, how shocking would that be!' but it is not permitted to be, and even if it were, no judicious moralist would make proclamation of it. This gentleman, therefore, there is reason to affirm, was one who, like the Hebrew governor, knew how to keep his hands clean, and who never in his life happened to be run suddenly against by hurrying house-painter or sweep. In a word, one whose very good luck it was to be a very good man not that he looked as if he were a kind of Wilberforce at all. That superior merit probably was not his. Nothing in his manner bespoke him righteous, but only good. And though to be good is much below being righteous, and though there is a difference between the two, yet not, it is to be hoped, so incompatible that a righteous man cannot be a good man. Though, conversely, in the pulpit it has been with much cogency urged that a merely good man, that is, one good merely by his nature, is so far from thereby being righteous that nothing short of a total change and conversion can make him so, which is something which no honest mind, well read in the history of righteousness, will care to deny. Nevertheless, since St. Paul himself, agreeing in a sense with the pulpit distinction, though not altogether in the pulpit deduction and also pretty plainly intimating which of the two qualities in question enjoys his apostolic preference i say since st paul has so meaningly said that scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die therefore when we repeat of this gentleman that he was only a good man Whatever else by severe censors may be objected to him, it is still to be hoped that his goodness will not at least be considered criminal in him. At all events, no man, not even a righteous man, would think it quite right to commit this gentleman to prison for the crime, extraordinary as he might deem it. More especially as, until everything could be known, there would be some chance that the gentleman might after all be quite as innocent of it as he himself it was pleasant to mark the good man's reception of the salute of the righteous man-that is, the man in gray-his inferior apparently not more in the social scale than in stature. Like the benign elm again, the good man seemed to wave the canopy of his goodness over that suitor, not in conceited condescension, but with that flat, even amenity of true majesty, which can be kind to any one without stooping to it. To the plea in behalf of the Seminole widows and orphans, the gentleman, after a question or two duly answered, responded by producing an ample pocket-book in the good, old, capacious style of fine green French Morocco and workmanship, bound with silk of the same colour, not to omit bills crisp with newness, fresh from the bank, no muckworks grime upon them, lucre those bills might be but as yet having been kept unspotted from the world, not of the filthy sort. Placing now three of those virgin bills in the applicant's hands, he hoped that the smallness of his contribution would be pardoned. To tell the truth, and this at last accounted for his toilet, he was bound but a short run down the river to attend, in a festive grove, the afternoon wedding of his niece, so did not carry much money with him. The other was about expressing his thanks, when the gentleman in his pleasant way checked him. The gratitude was on the other side. To him, he said, charity was in one sense not an effort, but a luxury, against too great indulgence in which his steward, a humorist, had sometimes admonished him. In some general talk which followed, relative to organized modes of doing good, The gentleman expressed his regrets that so many benevolent societies as there were, here and there isolated in the land, should not act in concert by coming together in the way that already in each society the individuals composing it had done, which would result, he thought, in like advantages upon a larger scale. Indeed, such a confederation might, perhaps, be attended with as happy results as politically attended that of the States. Upon his hitherto moderate enough companion, this suggestion had an effect illustrative in a sort of that notion of Socrates, that the soul is harmony. For as the sound of a flute in any particular key will, it is said, audibly affect the corresponding chord of any harp in good tune within hearing, just so now did some string in him respond, and with animation. Which animation, by the way, might seem more or less out of character in the man in grey, considering his unsprightly manner when first introduced, had he not already in certain after-colloquies given proof in some degree of the fact that, with certain natures, a soberly continent air at times, so far from arguing emptiness of stuff, is good proof it is there, and plenty of it, because unwasted, and may be used more effectively too when opportunity offers what now follows on the part of the man in grey will still further exemplify perhaps somewhat strikingly the truth or what appears to be such of this remark sir he said eagerly i am before you a project not dissimilar to yours was by me thrown out at the world's fair in london world's fair Hugh, there? Pray, how was that? First, let me—nay, but first tell me what took you to the fair. I went to exhibit an invalid's easy-chair I had invented. Then you have not always been in the charity business? Is it not charity to ease human suffering? I am and always have been, as I always will be, I trust, in the charity business, as you call it. But charity is not like a pin, one to make the head and the other the point. Charity is a work to which a good workman may be competent in all its branches. I invented my protean easy-chair in odd intervals, stolen from meals and sleep. You call it the protean easy-chair. Pray describe it. My protean easy-chair is a chair so all over bejointed, behinged, and padded, every way so elastic, springy, and docile to the airiest touch, that in some one of its endlessly changeable accommodations of back, seat, footboard, and arms, the most restless body, the body most racked, nay, I had almost added the most tormented conscience, must somehow and somewhere find rest. Believing that I owed it to suffering humanity to make known such a chair to the utmost, I scraped together my little means and off to the world's fair with it. You did right. But your scheme, how did you come to hit upon that? I was going to tell you. After seeing my invention duly catalogued and placed, I gave myself up to pondering the scene about me. As I dwelt upon that shining pageant of arts, and moving concourse of nations, I reflected that here was the pride of the world, glorifying in a glass house. A sense of the fragility of worldly grandeur profoundly impressed me, and I said to myself, I will see if this occasion of vanity cannot supply a hint toward a better profit than was designed. Let some worldwide good to the worldwide cause be now done. In short, inspired by the scene, on the fourth day I issued at the World's Fair my prospectus of the World's Charity. Quite a thought, but pray explain it. The World's Charity is to be a society whose members shall comprise deputies from every charity and mission extant. The one object of the society to be the methodization of the world's benevolence, to which end, the present system of voluntary and promiscuous contribution to be done away, and the society to be empowered by the various governments to levy annually one grand benevolence tax upon all mankind, as in Augustus Caesar's time the whole world to come up to be taxed, a tax which, for the scheme of it, should be something like the income tax in England. A tax also, as before hinted, to be a consolidation tax of all possible benevolence taxes. As in America here, the state tax, and the county tax, and the town tax, and the poll tax, are by the assessors rolled into one. This tax, according to my tables calculated with care, would result in the yearly raising of a fund little short of eight hundred millions, this fund to be annually applied in such objects, and in such modes, as the various charities and missions in general Congress represented might decree, whereby in fourteen years, as I estimate, there would have been devoted to good works the sum of eleven thousand two hundred millions, which would warrant the dissolution of the society, as that fund, judiciously expended, Not a pauper or heathen could remain the round world over. Eleven thousand two hundred millions, and all by passing round a hat, as it were. Yes, I'm no Fourier, the projector of an impossible scheme, but a philanthropist and a financier setting forth a philanthropy and a finance which are practicable. Practicable? Yes, 11,200 millions. It will frighten none but a retail philanthropist. What is it but 800 millions for each of 14 years? Now, 800 millions. What is that to average it but one little dollar a head for the population of the planet? And who will refuse? What Turk or Dyack even his own little dollar for sweet charity's sake? 800 millions. More than that sum is yearly expended by mankind, not only in vanities, but miseries. Consider that bloody spendthrift war. And are mankind so stupid, so wicked, that upon the demonstration of these things they will not, amending their ways, devote their superfluities to the blessing of the world instead of cursing it? Eight hundred millions! They have not to make it, it is theirs already, they have but to direct it from ill to good. And to this scarce a self-denial is demanded, actually they would not in the mass be one farthing the poorer for it, as certainly they would be all the better and happier. Don't you see? But admit, as you must, that mankind is not mad and my project is practicable. For what creature but a madman would not rather do good than ill, when it is plain that, good or ill, it must return upon himself? your sort of reasoning said the good gentleman adjusting his gold sleeve buttons seems all reasonable enough but with mankind it won't do then mankind are not reasoning beings if reason won't do with them that is not to the purpose by the way from the manner in which you alluded to the world's census it would appear that according to your world-wide scheme the pauper not less than the nabob is to contribute to the relief of pauperism and the heathen not less than the Christian to the conversion of heathenism. How is that? Why, that, pardon me, is quibbling. Now, no philanthropist likes to be opposed with quibbling. Well, I won't quibble any more. But after all, if I understand your project, there is little specially new in it further than the magnifying of means now in operation magnifying and energizing for one thing missions i would thoroughly reform missions i would quicken with the wall street spirit the wall street spirit yes for if confessedly certain spiritual ends are to be gained but through the auxiliary agency of worldly means then to the surer gaining of such spiritual ends the example of worldly policy in worldly projects should not by spiritual projectors be slighted. In brief, the conversion of the heathen, so far at least as depending on human effort, would, by the world's charity, be let out on contract. So much my bid for converting India, so much for Borneo, so much for Africa. Competition allowed, stimulus would be given. There would be no lethargy of monopoly. We should have no mission house or tract house of which slanderers could with any plausibility say that it had been degenerated in its clerkships into a sort of custom house. But the main point is the Archimedean money power that would be brought to bear. You mean the eight hundred million power? Yes. You see, this doing good to the world by driblets amounts to just nothing. I am for doing good to the world with a will. I am for doing good to the world once and for all, and having done with it. Do but think, my dear sir, of the eddies and maelstroms of pagans in China. People here have no conception of it. Of a frosty morning in Hong Kong, pauper pagans are found dead in the streets like so many nipped peas in a bin of peas. To be an immortal being in China is no more distinction than to be a snowflake in a snow-squall. What are a score or two of missionaries to such a people? A pinch of snuff to the kraken. I am for sending ten thousand missionaries in a body and converting the Chinese en masse within six months of the debarkation. The thing is then done and turned to something else. I fear you are too enthusiastic. A philanthropist is necessarily an enthusiast for without enthusiasm what was ever achieved but commonplace. But again, consider the poor in London. To that mob of misery, what is a joint here and a loaf there? I am for voting to them twenty thousand bullocks and one hundred thousand barrels of flour to begin with. Then they are comforted and no more hunger for one while among the poor of London. And so, all round, sharing the character of your general project these things i take it are rather examples of wonders that were to be wished than wonders that will happen and is the age of wonders past is the world too old is it barren think of sarah then i am abraham reviling the angel with a smile but still as to your design at large there seems a certain audacity But if to the audacity of the design there be brought a commensurate circumspectness of execution, how then? Why, do you really believe that your world's charity will ever go into operation? I have confidence that it will. But may you not be overconfident? For a Christian to talk so! But think of the obstacles. Obstacles? I have confidence to remove obstacles, though mountains, yes, confidence in the world's charity to that degree that, as no better person offers to supply the place, I have nominated myself provisional treasurer, and will be happy to receive subscriptions, for the present to be devoted to striking off a million more of my prospectuses. The talk went on. The man in grey revealed the spirit of benevolence which, mindful of the millennial promise, had gone abroad over all the countries of the globe, much as the diligent spirit of a husbandman, stirred by forethought of the coming seed-time, leads him in march reveries at his fireside over every field of his farm. The master chord of the man in grey had been touched, and it seemed as if it would never cease vibrating. A not unsilvery tongue, too, was his, with gestures that were a pentecost of added ones and persuasiveness before which granite hearts might crumble into gravel. Strange, therefore, how his auditor, so singularly good-hearted as he seemed, remained proof to such eloquence, though not as it turned out to such pleadings. For, after listening a while longer with pleasant incredulity, presently, as the boat touched his place of destination, the gentleman, with a look half-humor, half-pity, put another bank-note into his hands. Charitable to the last, if only to the dreams of enthusiasm. Chapter 8 A Charitable Lady If a drunkard in a sober fit is the dullest of mortals, an enthusiast in a reason-fit is not the most lively. And this, without prejudice to his greatly improved understanding, for if his elation was the height of his madness his despondency is but the extreme of his sanity something thus now to all appearance with the man in grey society his stimulus loneliness was his lethargy loneliness like the sea breeze blowing off from a thousand leagues of blankness he did not find as veteran solitaires do if anything too bracing In short, left to himself with none to charm forth his latent lymphatic, he insensibly resumes his original air, a quiescent one, blended of sad humility and demureness. Ere long he goes laggingly into the ladies' saloon, as in spiritless quest of somebody. But, after some disappointed glances about him, "'seats himself upon a sofa with an air of melancholy exhaustion and depression. "'At the sofa's further end sits a plump and pleasant person whose aspect seems to hint that, "'if she have any weak point, it must be anything rather than her excellent heart. "'From her twilight dress, neither dawn nor dark, "'apparently she is a widow just breaking the chrysalis of her morning. "'A small gilt testament is in her hand.' which she has just been reading half relinquished she holds the book in reverie her finger inserted at the twelve of first corinthians to which chapter possibly her attention might have recently been turned by witnessing the scene of the monetary mute and his slate the sacred page no longer meets her eye but as at evening when for a time the western hills shine on though the sun be set her thoughtful face retains its tenderness though the teacher is forgotten. Meantime, the expression of the stranger is such as ere long to attract her glance, but no responsive one. Presently, in her somewhat inquisitive survey, her volume drops. It is restored, no encroaching politeness in the act, but kindness, unadorned. The eyes of the lady sparkle. Evidently she is not now unprepossessed. Soon, Bending over, in a low, sad tone full of deference, the stranger breathes, Madam, pardon my freedom, but there is something in that face which strangely draws me. May I ask, are you a sister of the church? Why, really, you— In concern for her embarrassment, he hastens to relieve it, but without seeming so to do. It is very solitary for a brother here eyeing the showy ladies brocaded in the background, I find none to mingle souls with. It may be wrong. I know it is, but I cannot force myself to be easy with the people of the world. I prefer the company, however silent, of a brother or sister in good standing. By the way, madam, may I ask if you have confidence? Really, sir, why, really, I... "'Could you put confidence in me, for instance?' "'Really, sir, as much—I mean, as one may wisely put—in a—a stranger, an entire stranger I had almost said,' rejoined the lady, hardly yet at ease in her affability drawing aside a little in body, while at the same time her heart might have been drawn as far the other way, a natural struggle between charity and prudence.' entire stranger. (sighs) With a sigh, ah, who would be a stranger? In vain I wander. No one will have confidence in me. You interest me, said the good lady in mild surprise. Can I in any way befriend you? No one can befriend me who has not confidence. But I I have, at least to that degree. I mean that— Nay, nay, you have none, not at all. Pardon, I see it. No confidence. Fool, fond fool that I am to seek it. You are unjust, sir, rejoins the good lady with heightened interest, but it may be that something untoward in your experiences has unduly biased you. Not that I would cast reflections. Believe me, I... Yes, yes, I may say that... That... That you have confidence. Prove it. Let me have twenty dollars. Twenty dollars! There, I told you, madam. You had no confidence. The lady was, in an extraordinary way, touched. She sat in a sort of restless torment knowing not which way to turn. She began twenty different sentences, and left off at the first syllable of each. At last, in desperation, she hurried out. Tell me, sir, for what you want the twenty dollars. And did I not, then glancing at her in half-mourning, for the widow and the fatherless? I am traveling agent of the widow and orphan asylum recently founded among the Seminoles. "'And why did you not tell me your object before?' "'As not a little relieved, "'poor souls! Indians, too! "'Those cruelly used Indians! "'Here, here, how could I hesitate? "'I am so sorry it is no more!' "'Grieve not for that, madam,' "'rising and folding up the bank-notes. "'This is an inconsiderable sum, I admit, but—' "'Taking out his pencil and book—' Though I here but register the amount, there is another register where is set down the motive. good you have confidence. Yea, you can say to me, as the Apostle said to the Corinthians, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in all things. End of section 4